Welcome to Sausage on a Fork, a podcast dedicated to the UK's longest-running children's drama programme, Strange Hill. My name's Neil, and in each episode, I'll interview a former cast member about their life before, during, and after their time on the programme. Welcome to the next episode of Sausage on a Fork, and I am absolutely delighted to say that I have been joined for this episode by none other than Sean Maguire, who played Tegs Ratcliffe. Sean, welcome to Sausage on a Fork. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Brilliant to be talking to you <laughs> after all this time, because I know we've had a bit of a... <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I, I have been deferring. That We've been travelling and, you know, kids. And, and speaking of kids, right on cue, my little daughter's just wondering, how you doing that? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, my apologies for the procrastination, <laughs> but I'm here. I'm here and I will, I will, I will answer as best as I can. <laughs> uh, honestly, I've had loads of people. I've had loads of people saying, when are you getting tags on? And <laughs> as I've been saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my artist, but, he, you know, he's a busy fella. So <laughs> anyway, Sean, what we'll do is we'll go right back to the start. And if you can tell us how you got into acting, how it all started for you. Uh, I am the son of uh, Michael and Kathleen McGuire, run an Irish dancing school. Still to this day, uh, my, my brothers and sisters have sort of taken it over largely now, but they... Um, taught Irish dancing in, in Essex and in London. And uh, I'm one of six children, the second eldest of six. And the, when there was just the three of us, uh, the other three hadn't been born yet. We, my dad, uh, being the decent fellow that he is, we would often do uh, exhibitions, Irish dancing exhibitions, sometimes at old people's homes. And, you know, he's he's one of those guys who's like, you know, they they could do the lift and stuff. We'd be like, why are we doing this? Why are we <laughs> Typical moaning kids, you know. And uh, we were doing an exhibition. I don't even remember where it was now because it's obviously 41 years ago. But, um, or, or, or 42 years ago, we were doing an exhibition dancing somewhere, my brother and my sister and myself. And there was a woman called Peggy O'Farrell, or Peggy, I think it's Peggy O'Farrell. She was a, she was a theatrical agent. And she saw us dancing and said, oh, they're talented kids. Would you, would you think they would want to do television or movies or, or you know, that sort of thing? Yeah. And my dad sort of said, well, you know, if, yeah, sure, if it didn't interfere with their schoolwork, so to speak, which is ironic now, thinking back to it. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't have any memory of this. This is just what's gone into the etched in stone I, I don't recall any of it but I just know because we've, we've told this story many times and um, so she signed us up and I guess it can't have been too much later I got an audition which I don't remember I presume I must have auditioned for it for a film called Voyage Around My Father which okay. starred the late Laurence Olivier Sir Laurence Olivier and Alan Bates and Jane Asher Laurence Olivier, it was, it, was a, it was the life story of the writer John Mortimer, who wrote Rumpole of the Bailey and things like that, very famous writer. And it was one of those Thames television films. It was actually the last film that Olivier ever made. Right. And I got the job and I was cast as uh, Alan Bates and Jane Asher's son. Uh-huh. And I was on set, the few, you know, snapshot memories that I have, because I was five years old, you know, um, yeah. I remember being on set and I remember seeing all of the attention and the cameras and everything. And, you know, as one of three kids there, I was obviously an attention seeking. <laughs> and so 
being on set and being in the center of it, and I was like, this is kind of cool. And I remember my dad, I do remember one of those cool memory things of my dad saying to me, man, you've got to be very well behaved. You're about to meet the greatest actor in the world. Great. And I was already a Star Wars fan at this point. And then this <laughs> old fella comes out, Laurence Olivier. Of course, I didn't have a clue who he was. He was an old man at that point. And, um, and I remember thinking, this is the greatest actor in the world. This is this old man. But he was very sweet to me. He was very gentle and very sweet. And I was playing, playing with him. And then I remember doing some scenes with Alan Bates where I, we're in the car and I'm in the back of the car and he's backing the car up. And he says, is there anything behind me? And I just have to say, no, dad, or something simple yeah. like that. And he says, is there anything behind me? And I go, yeah, if you go back, you're going to hit all those cameramen and those people. <laughs> And he got a big laugh from the crew. And I remember going, what is this? What is this feeling? What is this intoxicating feeling of attention and applause? And, and there is the birth of an actor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so after that, it's strange. You know, like most of us in life, you have your, your kind of ups and your downs and, and you change your mind about a lot of things. But it was like it was branded in my brain and in my soul. That's it. That's it. That's all I want to do. Yeah. I know what I want to do. And I've had some rough days and some rough years, but <laughs> uh, with the exception of one or two occasions, and it's only fleeting, I never have deviated. I never right. wanted to do anything yeah. else. And so that was it. And so that was the start of it. And then there was a couple of other things. I think I did a, a commercial and I did a couple of other things. Uh, which kind of kept me just enough, just a little bit every year, six, seven, eight, nine. And I think I was, I don't remember if I was 10, I think I was 10. When the audition came through for Grain Chill and I, like nine and a half million people in the country at that time, nine and a half million children at the time, watched Grain Chill religiously. Uh, It scared me, intimidated me, because I was like, that's what big school's like. And then I was going to big school, so I was terrified that my school that I was going to was going to be like Grain Chill, where you get beaten up and, you know, mugged by Gripper or whatever it is. But I remember, again, like those cool memories, I remember getting the script uh, and and it had the Grain Chill emblem. And I think I joined just around when the emblem changed from that Uh old sign to the new purple and yellow thing. And um, I remember walking around at my mum and dad's Irish dancing class holding the script. So like, it's not a big deal. It's just great. You know, it's just, I'm going in for an audition. Going, no, it's not a big deal. I'm like, too big. you know, I was desperate for validation yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to be thought of as something other than this miniature little pipsqueak. That I and then uh, the, these memories are a bit clearer because they are really etched in stone. My auntie Sheila, so it wasn't just me, it was me, my brother Darren, my cousin Mark and my cousin Edward were all sent for the audition. Right. My mum and, and dad were teaching. So my auntie Sheila took me and in the car on the way there, obviously I'm like clutched in the script, like, oh, this is everything, I want this, I want this so bad. And my cousin Mark, who's one of my best friends, he went on to be my tour manager when I did the music and everything, we're still best mates to this day. And my brother Darren and my cousin Edward. And my, my cousin Mark went, listen, don't get upset if you don't get it, you know, because you are a bit small. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am a bit small, I guess, yeah, I guess who am I kidding myself? 
And then we got to Elstree and we walked into the reception area and Anita Dobson, because Jill and EastEnders shot yeah. at the studio as the top of the pops. I spent most of my life at Elstree, my young life at Elstree. <laughs> and um, Anita Dobson was there. And, you know, it may as well have been Beyonce or Lady yeah. To be honest, I couldn't give a shit about Beyonce. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know she was so famous. Because EastEnders was getting 27, 28 million viewers. EastEnders was the biggest thing in the country at the yeah. time. And we were like, oh, my God, that's us. We had to go and we met her. And we asked for her autograph. She was incredibly sweet and very well spoken, which was another like, oh, she doesn't speak like she doesn't. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And that that also put a thing in my head because my dad was very, um, he really stressed that we should try to speak well, even though we were from alphabetics and everyone was like, all right, all right. He's like, don't, don't talk like that. And to this day, I find, you know, I love accents. I, I, you know, most of my friends are from London and Cockney and, you know, and I love, yeah. I love all dialects. But my dad was very, very serious about speak well, speak properly. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's an identification of who you are and your intelligence. And that really landed. And so I spoke relatively well. But then I remember thinking after meeting her, oh, Ted should probably be more like, kind of, I mean, Ted's was very much like I spoke, but I just roughed it up a little bit. Yeah. Make him more, because um, I thought he wouldn't speak like I speak. He would speak a little bit more like, yeah, well, whatever, you know. Yeah. Little, little geezer, you know. And it was a neat meeting in Dobson that really kind of made me go, oh, maybe I should do something. And again, that was, you know, thinking back now, that they're the first times that I started uh -huh. to apply the idea of character and playing something other than myself yeah. uh, and all of that. And so, had the audition, um, and I remember meeting Ron Smedley, who's a lovely, lovely man, and Albert Barber, and Lee Jackson, and, oh, God, what's his name? Famous director. Anthony, um, Anthony Minghella. Anthony Minghella. They were all in the room. Now, obviously, I didn't know. They were just white men in suits <laughs> to me. Uh, I just knew that these were the guys that I had to impress. And I came in, I think I... I think I dropped a line or two because I was nervous. Uh -huh. But I had this little kind of, yeah, whatever, you know, I'm tough. I, I, I'm not scared yeah. of you. And of course, just never in my wildest dreams thought that it would 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 happen. Um, and then, you know, the rest is... I mean, some of your auditions we actually saw before you were in Grange Hill because you were making that Grange Hill behind the scenes program that's right that's uh, right 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 and, yeah. and i i to this day I, I, i'll be honest i watched it the other day in preparation for this it was strange because you just said about dropping lines and they've used that in the, in the program <laughs> and it's just thought because was that in the thing because yeah. i remember seeing that years ago but i haven't yeah seen it. like you sort of stuck and i just thought surely they could have used something else or another bit there if, he, if he's auditioning, auditioning to them fellas like well maybe I mean maybe showing that is sort of showing that the kid that ended up getting it didn't walk in yeah. ready made do you know yeah. what I mean and and again I was unlikely casting I, you know I was so small and there were and I was up against Lee McDonald's brother uh -huh. uh, also was going for that role we were like well he's Zamo's brother of course yeah. he's going to get the job do you know what I mean Zamo was a, an icon of the show Hey, baby girl. And um, 
So I, I think it's also that thing of, you know, if you hold on too tight, you hold on too tight, you're not going to get it. But there was something about me kind of going, oh, who am I kidding? Yeah. And then you kind of let go. And then the real you kind of comes out a little bit. And um, I mean, listen, I, I still to this day don't really know why that happened or how it happened. I just feel incredibly lucky that it did because it was yeah. definitely the start of this yeah. 41 year journey that I've yeah. been on, you know, um, I mean, it's the proper start. And I learned, cause I, you know, when I was at Grange Hill, I think I've been there about a year or something and nearly every kid, I don't really remember anybody else. I was the only kid that went to a normal comprehensive. Right. That okay. I remember. Every other kid, uh, I mean, maybe not the older ones, but the, all the kids that were in my year all went to Italia Conti, Sylvia Young, Barbara Speak, all these different schools. Uh-huh. And my dad, I remember my dad saying, do you, do you want to go to a drama school? Do you, do you think that that would be better? And I was like, no, I don't <laughs> think so. Because I, my dad was very uh, emphasised the importance of education. He kept saying, listen, if you want to be an actor, you, there are no great actors that are done. None. Yeah, yeah. If you want to be a good actor, you have to be educated, you have to be smart, you have to be well read. And by their own admittance, the other kids would sort of say, huh, no, we don't do any schoolwork. It's just all playing and stuff. And I was like, I'm playing here at Grange Hill. I think I should probably be trying to get my book smarts up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I went to just a, a, a very sort of typical comprehensive school. But the importance of education was really imposed upon me and I could see the importance of it. You know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's us actually in that great deal behind the scenes programme. That comes across in that because they ask you a question about your education and you actually say, you know, well, you need an education. Oh, did I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, really? said, you, you need, that, that's, that's my dad talking through me, obviously. Yeah. So what was it like joining the programme then? What was it, what was it like when you, you got there and you met all these people the first the first again it's all kind of a bit of a blur now in my memory but i remember you know the first couple of days and weeks i was just so enamored by john alford and george christopher like robbie and ziggy were you know it's like hanging out with premiership footballers (laughs) they were they were so cool and so i was just like And I remember to this day, um, I guess it must have been my first or second day or something, going to John Orford and saying, can I have your autograph, please? And he was like, what? Don't need me autograph. And I was like, see, you're on the show now. And I was like, yeah, I know, but just sign it anyway, because this thing's probably not going to last. So uh, better than I just oh. Better to have it and not need it than need it not have it. Know what I mean, John? And I got George's and everyone, and they were really good to me. They yeah. were really, I mean, John Drummond scared me a little bit because he was very kind of, theatrical and comical and very very funny guy yeah but it was like real school i was intimidated by the cool kids and intimidated by the big kids and you know i was obviously this big <laughs> and um my other the people that were in my year um rachel roberts paul adams darren cujo suzanne and sonia i oh, the names are escaping me now forgive me <laughs> Lynn Lynn Radford, Sonia Cairns. Lynn Radford. And I'm getting their real names and their stage names. (laughs) Lynn Radford. And there was one other girl who was lovely. Who's Sonia? No. Sonia. Sonia Cairns. Sonia Cairns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't know. (laughs) Um, 
And they were all lovely. Although Darren Cujo used to beat me up a little bit. Right. Uh, I, was a bit I was a bit like, I don't like him. He keeps hitting me and I'm not strong enough to hit him back. And so the chaperones were like our, our mothers and they were very sweet to me. And I think because I was the size of Tom Thumb, I think they kind of like, come here, little one. And they kind of put an arm around me. But the older guys were great. And, and especially John Alford um, and George Christopher, I remember kind of thinking... I can't believe I know them now. Like, yeah. It's like when the cool kids at school say hi to you, like they said hi to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I, I wasn't, so that really took the emphasis off the idea that I was going to go on screen in front of nine and a half million people. Uh-huh. And so that, that really was a, was a healthy, good thing because I don't think it would have been useful for me to have thought too much about the implications of what was coming next. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. So it was. It was. It was a lot. There was a lot going on all at once in my Brilliant. young life. Because you joined in, well, you would have been filming in '87. It went on air in '88, so it was still quite. And I mean, it was still a massive program, wasn't it? You know, you had the the just say yeah. no was only like you know eighteen months before. Yeah, and I remember watching that on on News Round and, uh-huh. and stuff like that. I mean, it Grange Hill was was a was a phenomenon. I mean, yeah. Nine, like 10, 10 odd million people. I just saw in Variety the other day, Game of Thrones got 9.99 million. <laughs> and I'm like, in America, with yeah. 350 million people, <laughs> you got 10 million. Grange Hill was getting that twice a week. I yeah. mean, this pre-internet, pre-sky, pre-cable, yeah. pre... It was, you had your four channel. I don't even know if Channel 4... Channel 4 was probably in its infancy then. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you came up from school and you put BBC One on. And, and that was it. So yeah. it's it's funny to think how television and how audience and audience shares have changed since then. But you forget that the country's population now is around, what, 55, 60 million in the UK. So it's probably around 55 million yeah. or something like that. So you're talking almost one in five yeah. is watching you twice a week. And when you think about those numbers, and with, when joining East End, there's 25, 26 million people. you Talking about, you know, one in three-ish, are, yeah. are you're in the living room twice a week. And that was a big, a big lesson for me about becoming recognisable. There's a difference between, I think, being famous, you know, like a, like a Barack Obama or, a, you know, a, a David Beckham or somebody who's just, a, you know, globally famous and so on. Yeah. And then there's just people that are very, very recognisable because they're in your living room. I never, when people think you're famous, I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> Recognizable is different to me than being famous. Right, okay. Famous is when you go to the out of, you know, Tibet or something, uh, you know, like a Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise is a good example. Yeah. Now, there's nowhere on the planet where Tom could go where people don't know Tom Cruise is. But, um, but with, with, with Grand Children and certainly EastEnders, you just get very recognisable, which is a, very much a double-edged sword. Right. You know, be careful yeah. what you wish for. Because I was like, oh, I want to be famous. I want to be famous. I want to be known by everyone. And then once you are, you're like, oh, this is not great. No. What <laughs> was what was the public reaction like to Tex? Well, the weird thing was, I it was like I was in a vacuum. I don't really remember. I remember I started to get recognised. It largely negative was what right. it was. School was a nightmare. I felt like most, I had my mates who are still my mates to this day who stuck up for me and were there for me, mainly my brother, my older brother and his year. But I had my best pals and they 
bless them, they they stuck it out with me. Uh, but it was not good. It was uh, right. largely disliked, largely hated. It, I mean, the students were bad. The teachers were worse. Wow. Yeah. I had a really negative experience because they just thought, oh, yeah. I, I mean, all the time. Oh, look, everyone. Look, who has a question? Mr. Television, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the really? things wow. were so, like, borders on child abuse, you know. I can't believe that some of them did what they did. There were one or two that were nice and nurturing, but largely it was a horrible experience. And so I felt the negativity far more than the positivity. Uh And only when I got much, much older, I remember years and years later, one of the first people said it to me, and I was like, what? was Matt Lucas, who's now (laughs) a good friend. The first time we met, he went, oh, my God, it's Ted Ratcliffe. And I was like, he was like, oh, my God, I loved you. And I was like, what? You're Matt Lucas? What? <laughs> it, then, it, then it seemed to just sort of unfold that people were like, Ted was great. Ted was yeah. a hero. Ted was a legend. And I was like, what? Yeah. I thought I was hated. You know, I mean, I knew that sort of some young girls liked me because I started getting fan mail, and that was a new experience. So I thought some people like me, but largely my big takeaway was I'm just that little git off the telephone. <laughs> so it was not, it was not uh, anything that would have uh, kind of gone to my head. It was quite quite the opposite. Yeah. When we first met Tex, obviously he was a pupil with a you know criminal record, you know, shoplifting and burglary, joyriding. And when Grange Hill had, had those types of characters before, they'd always been horrible. They'd always been like the bully. And stuff, yeah. and, I, and I thought it was quite, you know. How can you bully anyone when you're stupid? <laughs> look, you know look, I mean? look, they're like, he's a baddie, but he can't bully anyone because he's the size of a smurf. Looking back at it, that's—I think that was quite clever because he had that—he had that about him. But he was such a likable kid, wasn't he? He was such a likable character. Text, I thought, like, and I thought that was quite, well, quite it's clever. For me, I think what it was was he was a. Tough on the exterior, but uh-huh. deep down, desperately needed to be loved and yeah. desperately needed, you know, he didn't really have parents. He had a, a wayward criminal brother. And, you know, it's only looking back at it now that you kind of go, oh, they were quite smart in the way that they did it. Yeah. Now, I was sort of dealing with just day to day. I'd get the script, learn the script, go shoot the film, shoot the show, and then watch the show and move on. And I didn't really have. I mean, I wasn't old enough or intelligent enough to understand what was happening, really. But what they've done is they created this little tough kind of nut on the outside. But inside, he was just this little boy that desperately needed to be <laughs> yeah. loved and hugged and bathed and <laughs> clothes cleaned and stuff like that. And so um, I just didn't realise what they were doing or I didn't realise what was happening. And I didn't realise until a little bit later that I was playing a character that spoke to a lot of children that were going through this in real life. I mean, I was very lucky. I had a, a, very, I had a loving mother and father who were great and, and a great uh, set of siblings and stuff. Uh-huh. So my life couldn't have been any, couldn't have been more different, but... Um, it was, it was a little bit later when I left the show and I did some other stuff like Dodgems and stuff. I, I played a series of kids in care homes and right, yeah. online and I did all of this stuff. I just was clearly the little street urchin that had no <laughs> loving parents because I was class for a long time. 
Well, then I met kids in care homes and I went and, and met kids in foster care and stuff like that. And I will never forget, because it was the first time I'd ever seen it, I went into this foster care home to speak to kids before I shot something called Dodgems. And in this foster kids room, there were posters of me on the wall. And I was like, what? And they're like, you're a hero. You know, and I was like, I, I couldn't, it just didn't compute to me. It was too, it was too big a thought to understand for my young mind. But what it was was they saw a kid that represented them on screen uh-huh. and he appeared to be winning. He appeared to be kind of getting away with it. And I didn't, I mean, the writers must have understood that they were yeah. writing a kid that would speak to these children. All the kids that were watching the show who were probably sitting in an empty house. There's no mum or dad there. Maybe they were off working two jobs. Maybe their dad had left the mum or, you know, single yeah. time broken home. And, and that was that was completely uh, something that I was completely yeah. unaware of at the time. And then later on, when I realised that, I was like, oh, it's... Yeah. It meant, it meant I, I mean, we, we did meet Texas family. And obviously, Texas dad was played, right. yeah. played by an absolute legend. Terrifying. Um, <laughs> he's, scary, he's scary to me on the day. Normally, older actors, you know, I've worked with kids. I've played a lot of movies and shows with kids now. And I, yeah. I make an absolute point of picking them up and playing yeah. with them and doing all this. Alan Ford was terrifying to me. Never really yeah. spoke much. He was like that. Yeah. All right, what? Well, I've been doing <laughs> And I just remember being just absolutely scared out my wits by it because alan ford obviously famously it was bricked up in snatch yeah. and, for and he scared that, the hell out of me know, in snatch and I, I mean ev- everything you see alan ford in he plays that part and he plays it brilliantly yeah. and i wanted to know if he was really like that and obviously you had the experience that he was <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't really remember much I, mean, I, I only remember shooting with him once i don't know if he appeared in the show more than once but i only rem- have one memory well, that, yeah he, he wasn't in it he was in it a few times but not right. not a lot i don't i don't really remember having much to do with him much uh, uh certainly not i don't have any memories of talking off camera or anything I mean, he's probably like, what am I doing? I'm doing some poxy kid show. Oh, all, right. <laughs> all right, I'll do the scene now. I'm off. Smoke. You know? <laughs> yeah. So he, you know, he, or maybe he was just smart enough to know I've got to intimidate this kid or, or whatever it was. I don't know. I, you know, I've never met the man since. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, he was a, he was a sort of tragic kid, really. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of want cool storylines. I wanted to be good at football and yeah. all of this stuff. So, like, when they started making me smelly and dirty, and I remember, <laughs> I do remember vividly Ron Smedley saying, oh, guess what? You've got a scene in the bath next week. And I was like, uh, wait, what? Nobody's ever been in the bath on Grange Hill. You're not serious. I'm not, I'm not going to have to strip down and get in the bath in front of millions of people, much less the, the studio, the cameramen, uh-huh. everything. I was so... Just mortified. I couldn't believe that they were giving me these storylines. And I was embarrassed and didn't want them. But now, you know, looking back, I mean, God, it was sort of yeah. amazing, really. I mean, yeah. if they had not given storylines, Tegs wouldn't have become the character that he... Yeah. That he obviously, you've just mentioned the, you know, the being smelly and, and the scene in the bath and all that. And obviously, in those scenes, and in nearly most of your scenes, you got to work with, with Rachel Roberts. What yeah. was it like? What was Rachel like? Well, obviously, I don't know if it was 
transparent, but there was no acting. I mean, I had a huge crush on her. I had an enormous crush on her. I fancied her rotten. And, and of course, she was tall and blonde and beautiful. And I was, <laughs> you know, just a squeak. And so it was a bit... I don't know if the writers saw that or if they... I don't know if they conjured it or art imitated life or vice versa, but I just had this crush on her and it was just, it was never going to happen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, when I joined Grave Chill, that was the age when I started to go, ooh, girls. Right. Girls are cool. <laughs> now if I can just figure out how to talk to them. And they, the thing was, because I was so small, everyone's like, oh, you're so cute, you're so cute. And I was like, stop it. I don't want to be cute, I want to be cool. I want to yeah. be tough and cool. And they're like, oh, he's adorable. And I was like, no, stop that. Yeah. You know? uh, and I think she just looked at me like, oh, bless him. You did, know? Um, did you audition together? No, no, I don't think so. I don't, re- I don't recall auditions. I, mean, I don't even remember meeting her for the first time. I don't. I, I don't really have any memories of, of the beginning. There's just those, like, those bits that I've said, they're the ones that are like yeah. the core memories. I'm just, I was just asking because obviously the, the dynamic and the chemistry between the two here was great. Again, chemistry was not something that I was aware of. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, all of these things that you learn later on, having good chemistry, da 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 da, all that sort of stuff. It was just, I was literally learn these words, say these words, move on. Yeah. I didn't really think much. And then also, I guess, I did have this big crush on her. And I think that that probably bled through a little bit. Right. And she obviously, they wrote her like, she was sort of more like a big sister to me. Uh-huh. Than a girlfriend. And I don't really remember how it ended up, but we never we never got together, I don't think. There was nothing ever happened. It was, they were always sort of just really good mates. Yeah. Uh, Which is kind of, now now that I think about it because there's such a desire to you know to have two people on a show yeah. that you've written towards for years you you kind of almost have to give the audience that kiss or something yeah. but but in real life it doesn't always happen and Nothing. I think and in real life it never happened for us I mean I, I I had this big crush on her and I remember leaving the show going but yeah it, but she was always very sweet to me, and um, she was always a great girl. She was always lovely. I, in fact, I, you know, we haven't seen each other since I left the show. I don't think we've ever met each other, and I'd love to see her um, maybe when I'm back in London. I'm so frustrated because there's been a couple of times when there's been a Grangeville reunion, and, you know, I'm six and a half thousand miles away. Yeah. I'd love to fly back for it. I've got kids and, and responsibilities and stuff, so it's, it's hard. But I hope they do another one sometime in the future because yeah. I, would love, I would love to see a lot of them i mean i've seen and i've spoken to john orford and i've spoken to george christopher i've spoken to a few people but um no i'd love i'd love to have a reunion with them all. Cool. so you were on the program for or just around about four years yeah. give, or, give or take a bit do you have any memories of any favorite storylines or any favorite episodes that you were involved in uh uh, yeah, uh, the first things that come to mind were I loved the fact that um, I got to do some kind of scallywag stuff yeah. where, like, climbing through air vents and, you know, screwing things and stealing things and yeah. jumping off walls and shinning up drain pipes and stuff. Because, you know, as a little boy, you're like, I can do anything. I can yeah. do that stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
you know, when you're a kid, you're like, yeah, let me do my own stunts, you know, yeah. and, and all of that sort of thing. And the, the stuff where they brought in the American football storyline yeah. and stuff, and me being this little kid kind of getting one over on them, that I remember that being feeling kind of cool. Yeah. And, you know, I remember thinking, because I was a huge Michael J. Fox fan. Right. Which is why my collars were always turned up. <laughs> right, okay. I I wanted to be Michael J. Fox in Back yeah. to the Future, so I was emulating. I was trying to copy Michael J. Fox a lot, and so you know, even the way I was sort of running and stuff, I would I would because I'd watch Back to the Future and I'd be like, okay, I was like, ah, okay, I'll do that. And yeah. You know, and so. <laughs> um, a lot of the time, it was any excuse where I could get to be Martin McFly in Grand Chill was, was what I was trying to do. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody else ever spotted that, but that's definitely what I was trying to, trying to do, you know. So I remember those storylines being really cool. I remember the bath being mortifying. I remember the, it was an episode where I had to have my face painted, and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. I've never been one of those kids that liked face painting or right. anything like that. I'm like, that, nah, that. Nah. I remember having to walk around all day with a stupid tiger face on just but no, I mean not not really. Don't, I mean, you know, it's such a long time ago. I don't yeah. It's only looking to you that a lot of these memories are kind of coming back to me now, you know. Yeah. I, I always ask this this question. What was the relationship then between the kids and the adults like? Because you were on the program with some big names there, the likes of Michael Shade yeah. and Anna Quayle and Obviously, Gwyneth Powell and uh, and all these people. What, what was the what was the relationship like? Great, great. They were largely great. Michael Sheard was obviously a legend, and uh-huh. and largely terrifying. You know, right. <laughs> Mr. Bronson to me before I joined the show. Yeah. So it's very hard to unsee him. Yeah, uh, Mr. Bronson, and he um, fabulous actor and and a great great guy, but scary. Yeah, kind of kept up that little bit of scariness in a way. Not because he wasn't nice; he was he was a lovely man and a wonderful actor. But all of the teachers, one that passed away recently, Scottish actor, was um, Nicholas Nicholas Donnelly, lovely, lovely man. Um, Gwyneth, uh, uh, who looked very much like my mum, which right. is very because <laughs> me and her on screen together, it looked like my mum was telling me. <laughs> Very, very sweet. Um, Anna Quayle, lovely. Because I was like, you're in GG Bang Bang. <laughs> oh my God, you spoke to John Lennon. Because I'm the biggest fan in the world and John Lennon is my absolute hero. Right. And so I would just every day say, when you spoke to John, like, what did he say? What did he say? Like, what did he smell like? What did he, how did he, what did you, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, I've I, I told you everything I can tell you. I was like, tell me again. Because you're the closest thing I'll ever get to touching somebody who's touched John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were great. I mean, you know, we must have been such a bunch of little shits. <laughs> so, and they were all adult actors. They must have thought, God, why can't I get a grown-up job? Um, but they were really great. I, I don't have any negative memories about any of them. I remember tutoring in real life at the studio. That was hard. That was really right. laborious and boring because you're just in a room just just yeah. cracking books for three hours. I hated it. But the teachers that played the teachers, uh, the actors that played the teachers were, were great. They were really Brilliant. nice. Brilliant. So I, I just go on through a, a few of the things that Tex did. And obviously, 
he did have this criminal record and one of the things he did was he kind of used that allegedly allegedly <laughs> he, can't prove that he used that to do nice things for people you know when like you've mentioned Mauler before and there's a bit where Mr Robson's cycle helmet turned up in Mauler's locker and it's never actually said but Texas has got this little no one smirk on his face that yeah I did that and oh just... my god <laughs> yeah oh, wow yeah, and, yeah. And then, I, I, you know what? I think I think in a weird <laughs> way, they were the first semblances of Robin Hood in me. Yeah, you know, right. I was, yeah. Uh, I was Robin from the rich to give to the, <laughs> the Robson. <laughs> you know, and like he, you know, when Justine had been nice to him, and he, you know, a pair of earrings turned up in a locker that there's no way right. Tegs could have afforded. Sure. But you know, just just little things like that, and then a lot of it was about you said about you know the fact that he just wants to be loved, and we did sort of see like him living in a foster home, and living in with his mom, going and staying with his mom and stuff. But there's one thing I like about when he goes to the foster home. He's talking to his social worker, and there's a scene where he's talking. She said, "What's it like?" He said, "Well, it's all right, but you know, it's not. They've decorated my room, but they put all football posters up." I hate football, and they said something, and and I really hate Liverpool, and I just thought, yes, good lads, good lad, because I'm because I'm a massive Everton supporter. So I, oh, right, 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 right. I was going to say, well, that must have really upset. <laughs> no, you. no, then, not, not at all, all, not at all. I, um, I don't remember that. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I didn't know yeah, that Texas didn't like football. I, 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 I hate football, them. but yeah, I just uh, and like that was. I thought, yeah, he's all, he's all right by me. I suppose they had seen. From uh, Liverpool scouts, uh, yeah, they, ha- they had to address the blue <laughs> Mersey side. <laughs> like, hang on a second, we're losing half of Liverpool. <laughs> we better get the Evertonians. Uh, in. <laughs> so yeah, and then you know there was o- other things that, um, obviously in in the thing in your third series, Darren Kujo played Clark had left by this point. Uh, had so you? yeah, so Tegs and Matthew became sort of a bit more friendly and a bit more pally because. Justine yeah. was Justine was growing up and she was seeing other lads and stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> and then there's a thing with Matthew. Matthew goes on trial for arson. And you see Tegs. Tegs is made up because Tegs has got someone to talk to about uh, that. Because there's one of his mates is going through the same things. And it's and he's like, wow, you, you're in loads of trouble. And he actually, he, like, he's quite impressed. By the fact as well, like, and I and I love that. I, I actually, I absolutely love that. And I then, remember, yeah, Paul, Paul, who's a lovely guy, and we were really, really good friends. Sadly, yeah. lost. I'd love to. I'd love to. If you, if he sees this, Paul, if you see this, please, yeah. <laughs> please contact me because I'd love to catch up. Um, uh, I, I remember me and him used to get the train out together, and I do, I do remember there being a storyline where because he came from sort of more of a posh family, and then he. He kind of hit the the rough side yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now that you say it, it's kind of coming back to me. Yeah. Yeah, and then we'll just move on just a little bit. Then series fourteen, which was that was your fourth year at Grange Hill, and we're hit with this massive bombshell that Tex is going to leave. And like for me, as as a fan, I mean, I was a massive a massive Tex fan. And I, I mean, I was like 15, but I was gutted that he was leaving. Like, so whose decision was that then that you were going to leave? It was mine. Right. It was my decision. I mean, looking back on it now, I, I can't quite believe that I did it. But again, my mum and dad playing a massive part in, in it. Um, you know, it was getting closer to GCSE time. Uh-huh. 
and I was missing so much of my school life. My grades were suffering. And uh, my dad said, you know what? I think you should leave. And I was like, what? Are you crazy? I'm living the dream, man. He was like, yeah, but listen, if you want to be an actor, you're never going to make it unless you get your education. And if you fail your exams, he said, look, everybody that has left Grange Hill, a couple of them have gone to EastEnders, that's it. That's it. He said, there's no future in this. If you, if you see it all the way to the end, and my dad, to this day, is a, a huge influence on me and a very wise man. And I'm kind of now thinking about it, I'm like, I can't believe he kind of convinced me that it was the right thing to do. But it clearly was um, because it was unheard of. I mean, nobody left Green Chill. You, you stayed till the bitter end, you know. But the irony of it was that I left, which I think probably shocked a lot of people uh, i mean the producers and the fellow castmates are like what does matey think he's doing and it was purely it wasn't that it was a career move or anything like that i wasn't i wasn't that arrogant that i would thought that i was going to work ever again but i just thought my dad's right if i don't get an education i was always looking to the future uh-huh. and so i left and again, I remember my last day being very, very sad. Uh, I remember we used to take Polaroids. This is back before digital cameras. Uh-huh. Take continuity Polaroids, and there were all these Polaroids on the makeup door of funny things, embarrassing things, silly. Right. You know, uh, when my dad cut my hair and cut my sideburns too short. Uh, you know, all of these things, and they they taken them all down and put them in a book for me. Uh-huh. They gave them to me, and they recorded it on camera, and they gave me the tape giving me it and I was very emotional about it and uh, don't really remember much else to remember that was it I left and then I don't know how what the time span between it was but I left and then this tv show called Dodgems came up and it was basically playing a kid who's from a sort of broken home dad had accidentally killed mum and I was starring in my own show and and that's when I started to think, oh, maybe this could be something. Uh-huh. Maybe I could, maybe I could, maybe. But again, you have to remember, coming from where I come from and, and um, the forces around me, like the chaperones and everything, would tell us so often, don't get ahead of yourself, don't get a big head, don't get your feet off the ground. Like that was drilled into you. Like arrogance was not permitted. Lofty ideas and, and thinking or on something. It was unheard of to leave the show rather than being asked to leave the show, because that's the looming sort of Damocles, you know. And um, so then to leave and then to sort of accidentally be like a career move was just pure blind luck. I never would have assumed that would have happened. It was not strategized. It wasn't planned. It's all about leaving. Dodgem, you've mentioned Dodgem there. It's quite a bleak programme. It was, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, I only, really? I've only, I only saw it when it was first broadcast. I haven't seen it since, but I just remember it being yeah. really, really big. And of course, Lucy Speed was yeah. in it with, uh, who, who I still know today, and Hugh Bonneville, who's now Hugh Bonneville, yeah, very famous <laughs> movie star. Hugh was, Hugh was one of those actors that taught me a very valuable lesson about how to treat young actors. Right. He was so kind to me. He was so nice to me. And also Patrick Robinson was on that show. He went on to be in Casualty and other things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Hugh was an enormous um, 
had an enormous effect on me. Because I was like, this guy's treating me like I'm an adult. Because you're working adult hours, you're living in an adult professional sort of life. But he just treated me so kindly and so nice. And we are good friends to this day. You know, we've, we've remained in touch. And uh, he's one of those people, his success just makes me, you know, yeah. just so happy. Because Brilliant. you could not meet a nicer, more decent guy or somebody who deserves yeah. every ounce of success he's had. So, And, he, and you know, yeah, he was in the doldrums for a long time. And then I remember seeing Notting Hill and I was like, Hugh! Oh my God, because we sort of lost touch at that point. And I was like, oh my God, he's in a movie with Julia Roberts. This is amazing, you know? And one of those guys that um, you just you just hope and pray he's going to get what he gets and he, yeah. he deserves every bit of it. And that's never changed. Brilliant. Okay, so then after that, you did an episode of a bill, but then famously you walked the path that many people had, had walked from Grange Hill to EastEnders, and yeah. and we met Aidan Brosnan, a Irish footballer. Yeah, um, was, I'm, I'm guessing yeah. the I'm guessing the Irish accent came easy <laughs> with you. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just doing my dad, you know. Yeah. I, I was just I was just trying to. I mean, I used to sort of, you know, like all kids, man, get up those stairs, you, I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll football you to bed, kind of thing. So, <laughs> No, I would do that mimicking, mocking my dad kind of thing. And all my family in, in Ireland, are, uh, you know, most of, most of the nine families, seven of them are in Ireland and two are in London. So, you know, we'd go to Ireland every year and my mum and dad run an Irish dancing school. I grew up in a very second generation Irish area. So it, uh, yeah, some people gave me a bit of grief about it. But again, this was pre-internet, you know, there yeah. wasn't. If somebody wanted to insult you, they had to kind of come up and do it. Yeah, to find you, yeah. They did. <laughs> they did. And EastEnders was was about the time when I started getting hit in the face a lot. Uh, was, that was when I was like, oh, this fame thing. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little lukewarm on it now. Um, it really changed my perception of fame and what I wanted out of this game. Right. Then it went from I want to be the most famous actor in the world and win an Oscar and all that to I just want to work. Yeah, I just want to work. If I can just work, and I don't have to uh, wait tables or work behind the bar or drive a taxi, or which nothing wrong with that at all. But I just wanted, I just, I used to, honestly, this is the truth. I would go to bed every night and I would fall asleep saying my prayers, going, "Please God, just let me be an actor. Please God, just let me, just let me, just let me just work. I don't need all the fancy stuff. I don't have to be a millionaire. I don't have to this, but you know, I, I would like yeah. to get to Hollywood and I just, just, just let me work. That's all I wanted. I was, my focus was incredibly singularly pointed in one direction. And it was always, I will get to Hollywood and I will, yeah. I will fulfill my dream, you know? And I just, I was relentless I, and I, I nothing. And I missed weddings, christenings, funerals, every kind of family occasion there were times my family go on holiday i remember one time they went to florida and i had to stay behind on my own because i was filming uh, not literally on my own i stayed with an auntie and uncle and stuff <laughs> but they were like oh we feel terrible and i was like it's okay yeah it's okay I'm doing what i want i'm doing yeah. what i love you know and then mid 90s i've got to talk about this you had a, a music career yeah <laughs> how, did, how did how did that come about uh, you... honestly it seems um it seems inconceivable to me. So after EastEnders, the press, as they do, like to uh, make more of something than it is. So there's right. story, rumour that I was getting more fan mail 
than anybody had ever got. It was just all nonsense. I was getting a fair bit of mail, but it was the story's not good unless it's the most. It's the biggest. Oh, I get you. Yeah. So they so they ran away with this idea, and I was uh, dubbed a, a heartthrob or whatever kind of nonsense, which I never really liked, even though I wanted to win the favour of girls. I was like, nah, heartthrobs, they, they have a shelf life. I don't want that. I want to be Robert De Niro. I want to be Pacino. I want to be Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. They, never, they were never heartthrobs. I don't want to go down that route. So I was trying to steer away from that, um, but then, you know, ended up being in magazines and all of this. And so uh, Nigel Martin-Smith, who was Take That's manager at the time, approached me and said, I'd like to manage you. And I said, thank you. I have an agent. <laughs> to be a singer and I was like oh that's hilarious no I can't sing I can't play I can't. no no thank you and then Tom Watkins he's 17's manager same thing I said no thank you not singer I have no intention of it uh then Jonathan King um approached us and said you know this kid's gonna be a star to my mum and dad and I said no I don't want to do it I said well unless I can do it with my brother and my cousins and so then we formed a band you know, a band that can't sing, can't write, can't play. That was ill-fated, lasted all the five minutes. So there was all this rumour and, 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 and wooing of, I'm going to make a record and everything. And I was like, I don't want to, I can't sing. I, haven't, I had no desire to do it. And then I ended up getting a manager. I, I really could pick him. Called Max Stafford. Oh, right, okay. The, the uh, infamous Max Clifford, who... Again, my dad was like, I don't trust this one bit, but you know, the, you know, if he's going, you know, he's promising the sun, the moon, the stars, he was going to get us a record deal. And I was like, so then he got me on Speedway motorcycles because he was promoting that and promoting me. And then I had a really bad accident oh, where I, nice. I hit a wall at about 50 miles an hour. I tried to jump off the back and I broke my leg clean in half. If I'd have hit the wall, I'd have been dead. I was in hospital for about two weeks and, um, while I was lying in hospital, I had this kind of, kind of a, some sort of epiphany where I was like, I could be dead. This could have all been over. And life's short. It could, you know, it's fragile. And, and also I've left a soap. What am I going to do now? Nobody's going to hire me. I'm not credible. I, I have no future. I don't know what I'm going to do. And at this point, this wonderful man called Ian Allen came along, who's a friend to this day. Uh, a genuinely kind and decent, lovely man. <laughs> Pretty getting a bit emotional thinking about this stuff. <laughs> and he kind of came along and said, uh, listen, I, I understand you are uh, disillusioned by all of this. But he said, I see something in you. He said, just give me a year. Give me a year. I'll make you the biggest star in the country. And I was like, well, it's unemployment in this hospital bed. And I was like, you know what? In my head, I was like, you know what? I'm smarter than all of you this thing's not going to work at all. I'm going to flop like a giant whale and I'll take some money, I'll save the money and I'll use that while I'm unemployed so I can keep fighting for parts. And then, then there was like a bidding war between these record companies. I was like, you people really are dumb. <laughs> There's talented musicians out there. You're going to give this to me. So I ended up signing to EMI Parlophone, the same label as the Beatles. <laughs> which was, you know, to me, I'm like, I'm signed to the same label as the Beatles. <laughs> like, Can you sing or write or play? Not a whit. But I'm signed to the same label as the Beatles and that's all right with me. And so, um, you know, I thought we'd make one record, it would flop and, and that would be it. And then, you know, three years later, I'm 
touring and playing Wembley and making substandard pop records. <laughs> uh, but it was a great education. I, you know, I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do. I kind of wish, because now I'm very musically minded and I love playing and I love singing. I, I have no desire to play to an audience. Uh, I mean, other than my kids. Um, but I love to play. I have a friend who's here at the moment, a, a musician who's out in the garden at the moment. Uh, who's here making an album and I just love musicians and I love being around them and I love music but it was it's something that I discovered much later in life you know I I wish I'd known I wish I had the passion for music then that I have now right yeah but it was the way it was supposed to be it was never it was just a strange detour I sort of refer to it as I played a pop star for three years right okay (laughs) just yeah I, I took the role of the pop star and I played it as best I could yeah so then when so you, obviously you live in in California now. When did you decide, right? That's where I'm going. I, I'm, I'm I'm going now. Well, like, like everything, like everything in my career, it, it it looks from a distance as if I strategize. I mean, I always had in my head, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go to Hollywood. Uh-huh. Uh, when I left Grain Chill, I had one brief moment where it very nearly happened. I auditioned for a movie called Matinee which was directed by Joe Dante, who directed Gremlins and Inner Space and all these other big 80s blockbusters. And I got down to the final two and I was flown out to Los Angeles, California to go to Universal Studios to meet Joe Dante. And I was like, oh, it's happening. The dream is coming through. I knew I would. And then didn't get the part. The other kid got it. And that's when I referred to earlier about I've only ever once or twice thought, I'm going to give this up. Uh-huh. Fleeting, but the moment I didn't get that, it broke me. I just yeah. sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I just to be so close to the dream. Uh-huh. It was in touching distance. I was at Universal Studios. I was standing at the clock tower of Back to the Future. Wow. And I was just like, it has to be. It how can it not be? And then when it didn't happen, I just thought, why would God do that? What a, what kind of a <laughs> what are you? And and then what I didn't realize was, you know, there was some strange plan. And, and a few weeks later, I got an audition for EastEnders. And then everything changed. And so America kind of came about after the pop thing uh, had come to its natural end. I sort of said to the record company, look, this is not good. I'm not good. Why don't you let me make a record that I want to make rather right. than, and I made like a, a bad version of a Blur record which did terribly, and that was it. They dropped me. And then I just thought, okay, now I'm in trouble. So I've been in a soap, I've made bad pop records. What do I do now? Nobody's going to touch me with a barge pole. Because everything was about credibility then. You know, there was credible people, and then there were people like me. And uh, now you can be on, uh, no disrespect, you could be on Hollyoaks or something and then end up in Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? That was not possible back in the day. You had to be credible or you weren't or you were never going to get in the door. Um, Now it's a kind of, if you can do it, you can do it. I think it's much better and I'm glad for the young actors coming through now that the system's different. But then it had to be that way. And so after the pop and the extenders and everything else, I I, um, took a long, hard think about how am I going to do, what am I going to do? And my, I went and sat down with my agents and said, help me, guide me, what do I do? And they yeah. said, you need credibility. The only way to get credible is go do theatre, go do Shakespeare. My dad had always said to me, you're not a real actor until you've done Shakespeare. And I was like, yeah, well, I've been <laughs> quite a few shows and movies now. I think I am a real actor. He's like, have you done Shakespeare? And I was like, all right. So 
I got cast uh, bizarrely because at that point I, I was sort of, you know, not well educated and not well read and I could barely read out loud. I'm not joking, I was that bad. And I got cast as Romeo. And this was one of those times where it became massive, this is the making or breaking of you. Yeah. It was so hard and so, I was so out of my depth and I was so terrified. So I just quit everything in my life. I almost built like a brick wall around myself and went, just this and this play. I do nothing else. I will crack this. I will absolutely, I got to knock it out of the park. I have to, I have to prove to myself, more than anybody else, I had to prove to myself that I could do it. Yeah. And I thought, if I can do this, I can do anything. And if I can yeah. do two and a half hours of Shakespeare on stage, having never done a play before, then I can really do anything. And that's what I did. I just devoted myself completely to it. And uh, it was scary and it was terrifying and everything. But I got through it and it changed me. It really changed me. And it changed my belief in what I could do and what I could achieve. And then I was like, okay, now I'm in charge of myself. Yeah. You know, now I can do whatever I do if I put my mind to it. But it's talent is nothing without hard work and discipline. You know, yeah. it's, it's just unless you, unless you can cut all the distractions out and push everything away and go, Nothing else is going to work unless you get this right. You know, so I just dedicated myself to it. And, um, and it actually went really well. And I even got good reviews from people like The Times and stuff, which was unheard of for an EastEnder pop star to <laughs> review for Shakespeare. Yeah. This changed my belief in myself. And then I was like, okay, now I'm ready, world. And, and then, you know, as fate would have it, my agents introduced me to an American manager and he said, do you want to audition in America? And I was like, yes. <laughs> And I started auditioning for Spider-Man and, and Panic Room and The Princess Diaries. And I screen tested for The Princess Diaries. The director, Gary Marshall, liked me. They flew me out to LA while I was in LA. My manager shot me around to all of these studios, Warner Brothers. I mean, I was walking in the gates of Warner Brothers, which was like walking on the, the pitch at, you know, for me, White Hot Lane or, or, yeah. or Goodison Park for you. Yeah. Um, you know, it was just hallowed turf. This was it, uh -huh. you know. And I was so overwhelmed and excited and enthusiastic. Um, it must have just shown through because I met this woman called Barbara Miller who cast the cast of Friends, the cast of ER. And I was just oh, 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 oh. and she was like, I like you. You can yeah. meet the president. And I was like, the president? Oh, really? Come on now. And before I knew it, I was sitting in the president of Warner Brothers office. And I was just like, you're not really the president. I don't get to meet presidents. And I just, I guess it, my silly awkwardness came off as charming and he just said you know what we like you so we're gonna we're gonna do something here which we don't do very often we're gonna give you some money so you don't go work for anybody else how does that sound <laughs> i have like 1500 pounds in the bank to my life and no prospects and then there was the president of one of brothers saying come work here with us you know and he said what shows do you want to do and i was like uh friends uh yeah. thing. uh and he was like Get David Crane on the phone. Let's see if we can get a meeting for him over at Friends. And I was like, what are you, what? Yeah. what? <laughs> I was over at the Friends offices and I met my, what would be my future boss, David Crane. And I was very nearly on Friends, but Mark's wow. cousin was like, nah, we like this other kid more. So I missed my opportunity. But David Crane, the, the, the real creator runner, then hired me to be in the class some years later. So, you know, it was one of those just crazy, crazy. Yeah. Now going through it all because obviously don't go through my own uh, resume too often but it's just it's just bad it's just a, a series of very very lucky events yeah know? i mean like you've just said about your resume there so obviously you did the class and then the dukes 
and then meet the Spartans, which is the the parody of three hundred. So you were basically yeah. playing um, Jerry Butler, Leonidas. Yeah, 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 Jerry Butler. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what was that like doing that one? I mean, that must have been something else doing doing a parody it's like horrible. It was <laughs> horrible. I had to get in like Jerry's. I know Jerry's a friend and a fantastic guy, lovely guy. He trained for six months to get in shape. Right. I okay. Four, I, I had four weeks. So I was on no alcohol, no sugar, no fat, just working out for two hours in the morning, working out for two hours in the afternoon, horrible diet, seven days a week. It was just brutal. It was yeah. just really brutal. But it was my first three-picture deal, and I thought, okay, okay, I'll make this stupid movie, and then, I'm oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'll make this <laughs> silly movie, and, and then it will lead to the movie that I want to make, and so on and so forth. But... Um, it just didn't really transpire that way. And, um, you know, I had mixed feelings about it. But I've had a friend of mine said to me, don't speak ill of it, because there's a lot of people out there that like it. And when you speak ill of your own work, you're you're putting down their opinion of it. And I thought that's, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I just always wanted to make uh, The Godfather and Dog Day Afternoon and, and, <laughs> and you know, Heat like that. So... It was. It wasn't really where I wanted to go, but it was my first studio picture, and yeah. I, I wanted to just get cracking, you know. As you said before, you just wanted to work, didn't you? So you know, work. I, I made a deal with God. I was like, just want to work. <laughs> if you didn't say what kind of work, you just said work. I should have should have put a stipulation. Yeah. Good work. And I, I like, and obviously, since then, you know, you've done other things. You know, like Death in Paradise and Scott and Bailey, but then. In my eyes, the, the next big thing that you did was Once Upon a Time. Yeah, that, uh, that changed the game. Because I, I, like, I, I love Once Upon a Time. And when, when I was telling people about the premise behind Once Upon a Time, it sounds like it should be a kid's program. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it, sort of, well, because it's taking children's fairy tales yeah. and then spinning it out. So, yeah, it's. I remember I met, actually, I met the showrunner on the pilot and I just read a whole bunch of pilots that year and everything was the same. And this thing was very different. And I said to him, you know, regardless of whether you hire me or not, you're either going to have an enormous hit on your hands or the studio won't know what to do with this. And yeah. they won't have to make it. And obviously it was the former rather than the latter. And then they were interested in me to play a character. And, and um, I got another offer, which was unusual at the time to do a sitcom Right. And I'd done a bunch of sitcoms already, and I like sitcoms, and they're fun and they're easy. And uh, and I like the guy who's running, and they just offered me this show, so I went, oh, I'll, I'll take that rather than fishing for this. And then that show didn't go, and then once upon a time became this giant global hit, and I was like, oh god, <laughs> just fuck that up. But then you know, again, as fate would have it, um, the right role for me came along. Uh, yeah. In fact, my I'd auditioned for one role and then that had happened. Then there was another role. I think I auditioned on tape for Captain Hook. Yes. And my friend Colin ended up getting a great, <laughs> great Captain Hook. And then the, I think it was like a fax or, or an email came through. And my wife, I was painting my kitchen. I was in here painting the kitchen. And my wife said, oh, you've got another, an audition for Once Upon a Time? I went, nah, 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 not going in for that. Nah, I don't feel like being rejected today. No, I <laughs> I'm in charge of my paint. My paint can't reject me. I was obviously feeling a little bit like uh, sort of not feeling great. And she was like, it's for Robin Hood. And I was like, she went, I can... and my wife doesn't, she's not big on compliments and stuff. She, <laughs> she just was very no bullshit. And she was like, 
I can see you as Robin Hood. No, I can see me as Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> I write, brush down, clean up. I was like, right, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do it exactly as I want to do it. No bullshit. All right, this is how I'm going to do it. So da 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 da, I'm going to do that, and you're going to hand me that, and I'm going to do this. No, all right, got it. Fight drop. Boom. See you. <laughs> I'll never see these people again. And then the phone call. They wanted to do it, and I was like, God. Sometimes things just things just happen that uh, are very unexpected. Yeah, brilliant. And that really, really changed. It changed a lot. It changed our lives that one. Okay, so obviously you have done a lot of stuff, and you've mentioned some of the people that you've worked with. But I have to ask you this question: Do you ever get starstruck? God, yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, it changes, you know, like when I first moved to America, I remember, I remember the first American famous person I saw I came out of a meeting and I said to my manager, who, who became a, a really close friend, I was like, you'll never guess who I just saw, Tory Spelling. And he was like, <laughs> nah, you know, when you've been here for a while, you see everybody. And he was very sweet. He didn't make me go, Tory Spelling, who gives a shit about Tory Spelling? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I was really, you know, uh, I was enamoured by American stars. Uh-huh. Uh, but then that, that, that dissipates quite quickly. But I think the last time that I got genuinely, like, I couldn't talk, uh-huh. like, I just lost my shit, was um, we went to Old Cella, which was the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, um, Paul McCartney, uh-huh. you know, like, just legends. And I, a friend of mine is a musician, Oh, and, and the and the Who. So a friend of mine knew somebody from the Who, and uh, not the band, but like you know, part of their team. Uh-huh. So we had backstage passes and everything. And my mate from Dublin and I are just crazy Beatles fans, and so the big deal was obviously McCartney. McCartney's yeah. going. So all day we'd be getting a drink. Sean, it's McCartney. Oh, yeah. oh it's McCartney. You know, and it just, it got a bit tired. You know, yeah. by the end. Of the day, so we. It's a bit played now. <laughs> We're backstage, and I think I was looking at my phone or something. And my my mate Andy hits me, goes, John McCartney, and I was like, Yeah, Andy McCartney. He goes, No, fucking hit me like. And I was like, <laughs> And as I look up, Paul's walking by with a guitar slung over his shoulder, just you know, being Paul, like you know, <laughs> walking to the stage. And I was like, Oh my god! <laughs> I just kind of I couldn't quite because my entire life they yeah. have been playing in the background and so the Beatles are just such an enormous part of my yeah. life and my family's life but all of my family are huge Beatles fans I mean they're, they're bigger than they are bigger than Jesus <laughs> and so you know seeing someone like that I think the first time I saw Jack Nicholson um I was like Jesus that's Jack yeah. big Jack you know it only happens very very rarely the first time I met Leonardo DiCaprio, I was I was pretty stuck because I was like, "Shit, man, you're you're living the career that I <laughs> right." But he's also he's brilliant. I mean, he's an absolutely brilliant actor. So there's a couple of people that every now and then. Oh, Tom Hanks was the other one. Like oh, the first right. time I met okay. Tom Hanks, yeah, I, I just I was just like, properly because you know he's Tom Hanks. I mean, he's just he's about as big and as good as it gets, and he's also was actually really, really lovely. Because I did I've done this movie with Martin Short and Martin's really good friends with Tom. And then we were at Martin's Christmas party and this Christmas party that was one of the times where my my head sort of blew clean off. <laughs> right, okay. Martin Short's Christmas party is just 
it might as well be the Academy Awards. There's right. Goldie Horn and there's Steve Martin and there's Spielberg and there's and I was there with Christina Applegate, who's, who's my friend who had done this movie, and I was just going, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, is this normal? And she was like, no, this is crazy, even by her standards. She right. <laughs> she was like, no, this is batshit crazy. I remember I was living down at the beach at the time, and the next day I, I was so starstruck. Because it was so big and it was yeah. so all at once, I had to go and sit on the beach and just go. Oh my God, I talked to Steve Martin. I, I made Kurt Russell laugh like it was just. It yeah. was like all my childhood dreams just got packed into sort of three hours. Yeah, and it, it blew my head clean off. So yeah, it, it, but I think that was the last time that it was. It was like a thunderbolt, you uh-huh. know. Uh, but but uh, because I love actors and I love musicians and stuff. You know, there's still, I still, but footballers are a funny one. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. still, because I know a couple of footballers and, and uh, you know, this sounds very show busy and name dropping, but uh, Rod Stewart's got a football pitch up at his house. And yeah. so there's a bunch of us that play at, at Rod Stewart's house, which sounds uh-huh. crazy. But, you know, like Robbie Keane came up there and played football. And I was like, playing football with Robbie Keane, you know, I'm an island, you know, it's my jam. Yeah. And again, couldn't have been nicer and just so, so humble and down to earth. So yeah, I still get geeked out. And I think it'd be a shame if you lose that, you know, if you're like, yeah. oh, it doesn't really matter, yeah. then, then the magic's lost. And, yeah, you know? definitely. Definitely. And then on, in the same sort of vein, anyone who follows you on social media will know that you famously had a feud with William Shatner, and I'm saying feud very loosely there, <laughs> but I loved yes. that. I thought that, that that was brilliant. Like me, me and Big Billy Shats have gone toe to toe. He started it. He started <laughs> coming after me. I was like, "Oi, back up, Captain Kirk! I didn't want this fight, but you're an old man. You're out of shape." <laughs> but he, uh, funnily enough, I, I didn't understand it at first, and you know, he's giving me a bit of grief, so I gave him a bit back. Because you know, I was raised, you know, it doesn't matter who they are. <laughs> you come to you, you hit them back. And then he I was getting a lot of abuse online um from sort of fans of the show that didn't want me with the fictional girlfriend or just stupid. Oh, right, okay. yeah. and, um, and he private messaged me and said, You okay? And I was like, I said to my wife, William Shatner's messaging me. Is this kid? And I was like, Yeah, I'm okay, William Shatner. Are you okay? And he's like, Look, I see you get a lot of grief. And I said, well, yeah, I think I'm going to quit this social media thing. It's not for me. It's like, I grew up, you're not supposed to talk to your, yeah. to your stars and stuff. There's supposed to be a distance between us. I said, I'm going to quit this stuff anyway. He went, don't you dare. Don't you it's... dare. Don't let them, because if they do that, they'll have won. They'll have bullied you off it. He said, I don't like bullies. And I was like, I don't like bullies either. You're right. F*** them. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to, I'll just block and report and, and I'll sort of, so he was kind of really cool with me. And then we kind of sort of struck up a bit of a friendship, but then still kept our, our public yeah. feud was still yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But then he kind of sent me a message saying, Merry Christmas, kiddo, and stuff. And I was like, Captain Kirk, wish you a So yeah, it was, it was a weird one, you know, and I, I do, I do remind myself that, these are not normal things, and and uh, I feel very lucky and privileged that I managed to to live that dream that I was yeah kind of praying for you. Okay, now I will have some questions about Grange Hill in a moment, but I just want to talk to you about the players' conservancy because I know that's something that yeah. you know you're, you're obviously you're really involved with, really passionate about. Yeah. So if you can just let us know yeah. sort of what that is. 
Well, it, it's something that, because I've come from a family of teachers, obviously, and uh, as I mentioned, and um, I, I've been thinking about starting, because a lot of people have said, well, how do you start? What do you do? How do you? And I, I didn't know, because I never trained uh, as a youngster. And I, you know, I used to have a lot of people saying, how do you get into it? How do you do it? And I was like, I don't really, I had my own room. It was haphazard and fluke. And, and I thought I'd love to, because I've been very fortunate, I'd love to give something back and to, to just, I mean, who am I to be teaching acting? I'm no Al Pacino or Anthony Hopkins, but I thought, but I picked up a few things along the way and maybe I can be of some help to somebody. So I thought maybe I'll teach five, six people in a class and then COVID hit and then we were all locked down and I'm, I'm a work-driven person. I want to do stuff. I can't yeah. just sit around watching TV and I need to be functioning and doing something. And I thought, maybe I'll teach, but then we couldn't teach because we were in lockdown and all of that. And my brother came to stay during COVID and he was teaching Irish dancing over Zoom. And I was like, you can do that over Zoom? Okay. Yeah. Maybe I could teach acting over Zoom. I don't know how or I don't know where I'd start. But then that was it. We just I said to my wife, let's do this. Let's see if we can do this. And, um, and we started the school and we're, we're almost two years old in, in, yeah. uh, in a couple of days, a couple of weeks. I forget exactly when it was. Um, and, to, and, and in a few weeks, we're going to have our first in-person workshop. And we've got 30 people coming from all over the world. And we're going wow. to put on a version of Clue, the, the farcical play. And yeah. It's just been amazing. I mean, it's been a real... I didn't realise that I'd get so much out of it. I didn't realise that I would um, build something that, that would be so rewarding for me. And it's been, what's really lovely is, I mean, a lot of people that have joined are Once Upon a Time fans. And, you know, some of them are very shy and, and are, you know, awkward and, and don't feel that they can do public speaking. And I just said, look, it doesn't matter whether you want to be a professional actor or not. But if you have a problem with confidence, if you have a problem with public speaking, I can help you. And I felt very confident that I can do that. And just by a series of, of giving them tasks, letting them meet that task, uh, that task in it, and encouragement. And also, like I said, I don't like bullies. I said, in our school, we don't have any treating people badly. There's no doing anybody down. Constructive yeah. criticism, fine, but it's got to be constructive. Uh, and, um, and I've seen a lot of my students have gone from being very, very quiet, um, awkward in their own skin, to now they're, they're up there belting it out. And it just... You know, it just yeah makes Brilliant. me very Okay. Right, okay. So we are coming to the end. And I will, as I say, I always end with asking you just a few Grain Chill related questions. But right. I'm, going, I'm going to put an extra one in that I don't normally put in with other people. Your final scene in Grange Hill was Teg trying to get into a party and he couldn't because he looked too young oh. to get in. Right? Oh. Now, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, Sean. I had that all my life, you know what I mean? Even when I was 18 and oh. I had ID, people didn't believe it. I mean, to look at me now, you'd, you'd never believe that. But, but anyway, <laughs> so he goes, Tex goes to give Justine a hug or a kiss and he stops and walks off. And Justine runs after him, but we don't see what happens. What do you think happened? <laughs> do you know what? I, I've completely forgotten that scene. I'd forgotten that that happened. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realise that it was how it ended. I, I, I had absolutely no memory of that. Yeah, um, um, and because he, he was moving, he was moving to Germany, wasn't he? Text. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. My and he, and family was moving to Germany, which is yeah. bizarre. But, um, why not Ireland or something but easier? We, but, uh, we never see. We know, never I, saw I what happens. The romantic in me would like to think that she gave him a hug. 
yeah. and probably a kiss on the cheek. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's all it was. I think there was something kind of beautiful about it being an unrequited love story uh-huh. that, that he never, it's not Hollywood, you know, yeah. you know, you don't always get what I you mean. I mean, he does, he t- like, it, it, it takes to say, I never stopped liking you. Well, obviously, he, he realised that they had sort of grown apart a little bit. The fact that he still looked like he was 10 and yeah. she she was looking like, a, you know, an 18-year-old girl. Like, so, okay. All right, then. So, recently, there's been talk of a Grange Hill movie in the works. Phil Redmond is on board and, you know, it, it, the script is getting written. If you were asked, would we see a return of Tegs? Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't. I don't think I will be asked, and I don't. Um, I don't even know how that. <laughs> it would be so bizarre to yeah. play Pegs now, 40, 30 <laughs> years later, or something. But I think because Grange Hill really was, even though I'd done movies and, and a few things before it, I think Grange Hill was really the start when I think of the start of my professional career, really, uh-huh. yeah. to learn my trade. And so I'll always be so grateful to Grange Hill and um, to everything that I learned. Um, and who am I to sort of go, no, I'm, I'm too fancy now to do that. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I think I would. I think I would just, just um, out of respect and gratitude, you know. Um, Brilliant. I, I, I don't know if I, I will be asked. Nobody's contacted me, so okay. um, I don't think that's on the card. But, yeah, it would be weird. It would be yeah. very weird. I had no idea how I would do <laughs> eggs now because I'm 46 and <laughs> three kids. And, so it would be strange. But, yeah, I think I think I would always – I generally have a policy about not going back to shows once I've left them. I don't know yeah. where that came from. But I've only done it once, and it was once upon a time, and I did it. Really, if I'm being honest, um, because the fans of the show were so good to me and they were so, so powerful, not all of them, some of them hated me, but um, uh, the fans of the show really were extraordinary to me. And that storyline, uh, a lot of people felt that Robin was killed when he shouldn't have been and it left that another unrequited love story which never got exposure. And so I wanted to give the audience what they wanted. But generally, as a rule, once I've left the show, I kind of think I've done that, played that, I yeah. don't really want to come back. Yeah. But going back to visit Tegs 30-odd years later <laughs> would be sort of bizarre. <laughs> so, yeah. um, okay, then. So other than Tegs, who was your favourite character in Grangeville? Uh Robbie and Ziggy. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. And yeah, so if, cool. so if, you, if you couldn't have played Tegs, what other character would you have liked to have played? Would you have wanted to have played Robbie or Ziggy? Roland. Ah, right, okay. I, I loved Roland, and I loved the girl that would be like, Roland, yeah. Roland. I just something about those two that I just, I just love them. Um, or Mr. Bronson. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Bronson was such a great character. Danny Kendall was another great one. Yeah. I thought he was such an amazing character, and he was a lovely guy as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Grange Hill, they, they, they did create some really good characters. Yeah. Okay, kind of in that vein. On my last, my last question is, why do you think then there is still such affection for Grange Hill? Well, because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of the 
it's part of our childhood, you know? I mean, it was such a big, TV, the world is so different now. There's no show in the world. There's no kid show in the world that gets nine million people watching it twice a week. But I mean, my friend Alton was saying the other day, I miss the days when we were all watching the same thing. Right now we have the beauty of choice, but sometimes yeah. choice is too much. And, you know, back on, you know, back in the day, you know, I was saying like on a Thursday night, you know, it was top of the pops, EastEnders and Tomorrow's World. Or, yeah. like, you knew there, were, there were certain days where you, yeah. was like, you didn't want to miss TV. And Angel was, it was a water cooler show. I mean, everybody was watching it. Everybody was talking about it. And it just was a big, big part of growing up in Britain in the 70s, yeah. the 80s and the 90s. And I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again, yeah. because now with so much choice, you know, it just, you'll never get that many people watching one thing unless it becomes a, a giant hit, like a Game of Thrones or Stranger Things or something like that. But even then, uh, this was this was not pay-per-view TV. This was just everybody tuning in, probably because there was nothing else on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Shite on the other channels, but but it was also a well-made TV show and had a had a social conscience, and I think it was it was really informative. I mean, look, they ended up going to the White House and having an anti-drugs campaign, yeah. anti-Reagan. So that's not usual. It, it was a very um, it's on my resume that I got to to say I went to Granger. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, Sean, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I know you're a busy man, like so. It's uh, it's great that you've been able to come on. And no, share, your, share your experience. I feel like I've just done This Is Your Life. I like <laughs> things that I haven't really thought about for 20 years. Well, I, I, have, I haven't got a big red book for you. I apologise. <laughs> but, uh, no but it's a pleasure talking to you, Neil. And, uh, and uh, I love what you're doing with the site and everything. So keep it up. And if, if any of my old Grangehill buddies like, uh, like Rachel or, or Paul, I think it's called Paris now. Um, if they get in contact, please please tell them to send me a message because I'd love to catch up with someone. I, I will do, definitely. Brilliant. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. And for yeah. anyone for anyone who's listening, I'll speak to you next time. Cheers. All right. Thanks. Cheers, Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.